Ceramics are everywhere in today's world, but who are the scientists and engineers who work with such materials? Now is your chance to meet them here on Ceramic Tech Chat. I'm Eileen DeGeer, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat. What would you do if someone offered you $500 to major in a certain field when you went to college? That was the choice University of Virginia Materials Science professor Beth Opila faced when she was preparing to attend the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign for her undergraduate studies. So anyway, I'm a, you know, a high school senior, and I've applied to University of Illinois Engineering, and I get this mail from the Department of Ceramic Engineering with a glossy handout, pictures of like cool glasses and things like that. And uh, they also offered $500. <laughs> I signed up for ceramic wow. engineering. <laughs> and so my thinking was, well, this looks cool. And freshmen take all the same classes. So I'll just take the $500 <laughs> and go. Once she got to university, though, Beth quickly discovered that more than just the $500 scholarship excited her about ceramic engineering. And I'm taking my chemistry lab, and I'm taking a ceramic engineering lab. I'm doing terrible in the chemistry lab. We're doing unknowns and titrating, and one little drop is supposed to fall in, and you get your magic whatever, pH or whatever. But I let in like 20 drops, and it's like, I'm getting like zeros on all my unknowns. It's like getting a D in this chem lab. Then I go to my ceramic engineering lab and we go into this room with these trash cans full of, you know, raw materials and we get a scoop and we put it in a bag and it's like, this is so much better than titrating. Beth made an important discovery that year in her ceramic engineering lab, getting a, quote, right answer is not the primary goal of ceramics research. New things are being learned about ceramic materials every day, and the willingness to investigate the why when things do not go as planned, and the curiosity to figure out how to apply those findings to applications is a driving force for many ceramic scientists and engineers. But just who are these people pursuing careers in ceramics, a field that many people think simply refers to pottery, tiles, and toilets? Traditional ceramics are what many people think of when they hear the word ceramics. Traditional ceramics are made from three basic components, clay, silica, and feldspar, and these can be found in many homes in the form of mugs, dishes, and pots. Advanced ceramics, on the other hand, include materials such as oxides, nitrides, carbides, and borides, and are found throughout our modern-day lives from cell phones and laptops to cars and airplanes, to dental crowns and hip replacements. Beth Opila researches advanced ceramics in her lab at the University of Virginia, particularly those used in high temperature systems like aircraft engines. But Beth's research began much earlier when she worked on ultra high temperature ceramics at NASA in Cleveland, Ohio. When I got hired at NASA, I got hired for a specific program. So, of course, the first A in NASA is aeronautics, which mm. people forget about that. So I was hired for an aeronautics program where we were working in collaboration with uh, GE Aviation and Pratt & Whitney on a new uh, engine concept that was supposed to go in, like, a high-speed civil transport, like a replacement for the Concorde. Oh. 
And so in order to be better than the Concorde, they, which was used so much fuel, they wanted a more efficient engine. Okay. Um, and there were other issues like the sonic boom and things like that. But we were working on the engine from the point of view of making it more efficient. And so they wanted to run it hotter, and they were going to use uh, silicon carbide-based ceramic composites. And so I show up at NASA, and, and uh, they said this, this engine concept was going to have two chambers, one where there was uh, fuel lean, comparing the fuel and air ratio, mm-hmm. and the other chamber was going to be fuel rich, so more fuel than air for us for the actual combustion reaction. So a reducing atmosphere on one side and an oxidizing atmosphere on the other side. Right. So they gave me the oxidizing environment because they thought it was easier, and they gave this uh, fuel-rich, this reducing atmosphere to another engineer. And uh, so when you burn fuel, of course, you get CO2 and water vapor. And so I spent a lot of time looking at interactions with water vapor at these really high temperatures. And I discovered through a lot of painstaking experiments that actually they thought it was going to be, you know, fine in this environment. It would oxidize and the oxide would grow thicker and the reaction would slow down and that'd be fine. And so I was just kind of figuring out how fast that happened. But what I discovered was that the oxide was actually vaporizing in the water vapor and the reaction rates were much, much faster and uh, it took me a long time to convince people that this was actually happening. <laughs> happening. Um, and so they said, oh, we need a coating. And so because of my work, there's the whole field of environmental barrier coatings. Oh. And, for example, at this conference, there was like two at least days on environmental barrier coatings. And so mm-hmm. I'm very proud that I was, you know, at the origins of, of that uh, technology. Of course, I wish silicon carbide didn't have that problem, but right. it does. So anyway, I feel like I've had an impact in enabling the use of silicon carbide and engines because we realized that we did need this coating. Right. And so are environmental barrier coatings actually used now in, they in are. engines? Yeah, yeah. So uh, silicon carbide <laughs> composites um, entered service in civilian engines in 2016. Really? In a Leap engine that oh, GE yes. um, makes in a consortium with Saffron, I believe, in, oh, that's in right. France. Uh-huh. So EBCs are flying. So that was at NASA. It was always like, um, are you working on a project and are you getting it flying? And so, yes. So. <laughs> how, how many months or maybe years into this research were you when you started to realize that what they, everyone thought would happen is, in fact, not what was happening? Well, let's see. I think I started in 91, and my paper was published in 97. So somewhere in between there, maybe like 95-ish, so probably like four years. I remember I had all my silicon carbide samples, and I was just like, I'm so confused. So I took them all and spread them all out on a table and grouped them in little groups and said, these ones are like losing weight. Why is that? And these, you know, they should be gaining weight. And I just like... It was like a big puzzle that I had to solve. Yeah, uh-huh. so maybe four years, and uh-huh. like into the puzzle, and kind of getting what's going on. Yeah, is that kind of typical for research that um, it takes a long time to collect enough data to start to see what's happening? It, I find that's that's very typical, at okay. least for the sub 
area that I work in mm-hmm. is you'll do experiments and um, they, you know, usually I'm working for materials that want to be used for a long time. So you have to do long experiments, like a week is kind of a short experiment. And I find that like maybe every three years I'm able to make a, as an individual researcher, an individual researcher can make a contribution in this kind of subdiscipline about every three years, you know, get enough experiments done, figure out what's going on. Mm-hmm. So as you work with graduate students, do you, how do you advise them as far as like, we don't really live in a patient world right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> so how do you help them sort of see that it takes time? That's a good question. Um I'm not sure I address that <laughs> when, I, when they start. I mean, when they're new in the group and they have some experiments, I want them to be comfortable with knowing everything about, you know, whatever equipment they're using. So usually I have them, you know, repeat like what the last person in the field has done. It's like, you want to understand everything. So we work with a lot of furnaces. So you want to understand, you know, do you really know what temperature it is? Do you really know what's reacting with what in there? Are you comfortable with how the gas is flowing? You know, all that stuff. So the first year is kind of just getting into that comfort zone. Uh And then um, I tell them that they should expect that. But um, I guess we have conversations about how, you know, different research areas work and you know, like some people, students in other groups may be publishing things, you know, in a year and they'll be like on a, you know, a paper with 10 or 15 other people. And I said, you know, you really own this project. And so you're going to be the one that's put, putting in a lot of work to it. And it may not be this big, giant co-author mm-hmm. paper. Looking back on research discoveries can help you appreciate how things you learned in school are actually critical to figuring out what's going on. For Beth, her work on ultra-high temperature ceramics gave her a much deeper appreciation for the thermodynamics classes she took in school. So, I mean, I've taken three thermodynamics classes in my life in materials. I took, you know, the undergraduate one, my master's degree one, my PhD one, and I hated all three of the classes. (laughs) I never understood, like, what's with these reference states? I don't get it. <laughs> so now I'm at NASA, and, like, we're thinking about these high-temperature materials. And um, because we're thinking about these high temperatures, kinetics are pretty fast. And so thermodynamics is really important, what's going to happen. And I started using these tools of thermodynamics. And it's like, you know, this stuff kind of works. <laughs> and so I, I really needed to understand these, you know, tricky bits about thermodynamics in order to be accurate. And so I, you know, started to appreciate reference states and all the things that had tormented me before. I love to teach it because I I want to convey to the students that you may hate this class. I'm going to try to bring it, you know, make it real for you how we can use this stuff mm-hmm. and why it's so cool. So, yeah. And do you see the students responding a little bit better to, because you actually use it as a tool, whereas right. many professors teach it as sort of a part of, not something they actually use, but something everyone needs to know. Right. I think so. Um, mm-hmm. I also try to make it, you know, you know, sometimes I feel like, you know, some of the, like the more finer details, you can, 
sort of get, and then when you use it, you can look into the book. But I want them to feel comfortable with the concepts. And so I think mm-hmm. that's that's important, and I think they, they get that. Mm-hmm. Like, um, I try to do, like, little things that they'll remember. So when we first talk about solid solutions, I have my M&M lecture <laughs> where I bring in two colors of M&Ms. <laughs> and, I, you know, we talk about the the blue M&Ms and the orange M&Ms, and they've got their own molar volume, and now we'll, we'll mix them, and they could have, you know, be attracted to each other or repulsed from each other, and now they have partial molar volumes that are different. And so I, you know, try to explain it in a way that makes kind of visual sense. And then they can eat them, and then they can remember the taste, too. Right. So appeal to all those senses. So I... Can't help but notice that um, blue M Ms and orange M Ms are the colors of the University of Illinois and University of Virginia. <laughs> oh, okay, excellent. So, so it's a holistic approach. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very good. Yeah. yeah. So you know, having yourself, you know, had some experiences in pretty different areas, can you comment on how much it helps you as a researcher? Eventually, as a researcher, you kind of have to pick a lane and go down it and more or less stay with it. You know, you're asking some really deep questions. But to what extent do your other experiences in other areas sort of inform or help you in the particular area that you're really going to focus on? I think I mean, any experience provides value, right? You opened your mind up to some different things. You've got different ways you can look at questions. So everything's been been helpful. And, uh, you know, you mentioned you go very detailed down a certain path, but some people don't, right? They're able to recreate their research in a different field. I'm not really that person, but I do like to borrow from different fields. Like, I also tell my students, you know, I haven't had an original idea in my life, but what I have had is the ability to take two different ideas and put them together in a new way. And mm-hmm. I think that is really valuable. So if you've had a lot of different experiences, you have more things to pick and choose from to combine in unique ways. Mm-hmm. So. That's, that's an interesting point that, you know, it's not that you have to have the original idea. It's sort of you have to see how you can tie two things together in a useful way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that, that's an interesting insight. Yeah, it makes it fun. You keep your eye out. You know, you could go, for example, at this conference, you can go to a presentation in a completely different field and, like, just be keeping your eyes out. Is there something there that I can bring into my field that would be new and exciting? Yeah. Does any example come to mind easily that you could illustrate Um, it? So, sure, I can talk about these ultra-high-temperature ceramics. So we want to see how they react at these super-high temperatures and the kinds of furnaces that you can use in, in a lab environment in, in air or something where there's a reactive gas, typically you can't go hotter than 1500C. And so I'm always looking for ways to make things hotter in an easy way. I don't really like complicated things in the lab. I like simple and easy. Uh-huh. And so actually uh, John Halloran, who's a oh. professor emeritus at University of Mi- Michigan, had his students doing... Um, resistive heating of ultra-high temperature materials. So you put 100 amps through a thin cross-section, and it heats up like a light bulb filament. And so I said, well, this is really cool. They were doing it just on like a benchtop in a lab. And I said, you know what? I want to control the environment. So let's take 
John Halloran's idea here and put it in a chamber where we can control the gas. And so we actually built, oh, we, my student built <laughs> this chamber. Um, and you can, like, put in different mixtures of gases. And one of the cool things we did, we borrowed from another experiment where they oxidize in just regular oxygen, and then they do a second exposure in an isotope of oxygen, so O18. So you now have your material reacted with two different kinds of oxygen, and then you can take it to a certain uh, characterization equipment, a time of flight secondary ion mass spectrometry, yeah. and you can like um, actually image your material, but you can sort out where the original oxygen was from this heavier mm -hmm. oxygen, and you can get a nice map that kind of guides you to understand the reaction. So I combined this John Halloran's resistive heating system with this idea of doing this, this two kinds of uh, oxygen exposure into one experiment so we could do this at these ultra-high temperatures. So that's an example. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, so that, that's, thank you for that. It's, uh, I think, useful to, for people to kind of see how things tie together in an interdisciplinary way like that. What other experiences did you have early in your career that really kind of led you towards where you are now? Because when we entered the field, ceramics was still very much traditional, you know, triaxial whitewares right. and refractories and nothing like, didn't look anything like what you're working on now. Mm-hmm. So what was that pathway? Well, again, like? I wasn't sure and took the long path. <laughs> so I finished the bachelor's degree and still have no idea what I want to do with my life. Um, so I'll delay. I'll go get a master's degree. <laughs> so I uh, went to Berkeley and I got a master's degree and uh, learned some good things, learned to appreciate thermodynamics a little bit more. I, my research was pretty obscure surface diffusion in porous oxides. But anyway, I still kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, well, I'll go work for a while. So I was out in California. So I just worked in Silicon Valley for two years as a packaging engineer. So we're talking about ceramic packages that you put the silicon devices in and seal them and making sure they're reliable and all that stuff. And again, I learned some stuff. I mean, it was really the only time I've worked in industry, so you learn about, you know, quality control and quality assurance and what's the difference and how, you know, you got to keep the production going. And mm -hmm. I discovered I was starting to learn what I wanted, and that wasn't it because I never <laughs> got to ask why, right? Oh. It was just, let's make this thing. Let's make it yeah. work. If there's a problem, we'll fix it as fast as we can. We might not fully understand mm -hmm. why it's fixed. So then I went back to grad school, and now I'm sure I want to, you know, get my PhD and do research and ask that, that why the question. Why. Yeah. What has surprised you about your career as it's unfolded? You know, thinking back to the 18-year-old entered a career because they offered her $500. It's actually been a pretty good ROI for you. But looking back, what would you say she would be surprised at where she is now? There is no way on earth that I would ever be a professor. <laughs> Why would I be this person who wants to work 70 hours a week? <laughs> who, um, like I said, you know, I, I thought I didn't have ideas, but it turns out I do. Sure, <laughs> and, um, of course. I love mentoring students, which 
I would have never thought that either. Okay. So, Excellent. So it sounds like 18-year-old Beth Opila would be pretty happy with, surprised but pretty happy with how it's turned out. Uh, I think she, she would have no clue. It's like, <laughs> how did that happen? I'm not doing that. <laughs> so somewhere out there, there's an 18-year-old who's just got her shiny um brochure from a university probably offering her $5,000 instead uh-huh. of 500 But uh, what would you say to a young person today considering options, career options, and thinking about material science and particularly ceramic engineering? What's What kind of future would you offer to that young person? Well, I mean, based on the way I've wandered around, uh, I have, you know, a couple of responses. It's like, first one is just don't be afraid to try anything, right? Mm-hmm. You'll, you'll get some value out of any experience and you can change your mind, right? You know, if you, you start a PhD and you find out you hate it, you know, just get your master's degree, right? Or mm-hmm. you start your PhD and then you get a job and say, you know what? I really want this job instead. That's all great because you're just piling up new experiences. And, um, I guess the other one, I'm going back to that why question, you know, <laughs> like, why would you want to do this? You know, what, what do you value that that can help inform choices of direction? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, it could be money. It could be uh, like me. You just like solving puzzles or, you know, what what turns you on and yeah. just follow that. Yeah. yeah. What kind of global problems do you want to help solve? Right. Yeah, like, uh, well, what kind of global problems would you say UHTC, your research kind of helps solve? Uh, well, so, you know, we have these, uh, <laughs> these like, engineering themes at University of Virginia, and one of them is, you know, for a more sustainable future, right? Mm. So anything that I'm working on is really focused, basically, at increasing efficiencies. So this is where I you know, feel I'm contributing to like the big picture is like, you know, let's, let's do things in a more sustainable way. And, you know, if if I can help make airplane engines more efficient, you know, then that's a great thing. I just have to ask when you were doing your research at NASA and understanding how corrosion happens in in an engine and that led to environmental barrier coatings, did you ever go through a phase of being afraid of flying? Um, Because maybe knowing too much. (laughs) Well, there is that thing. Like, I know what's going on in an airplane engine. Yeah. So I don't think I was afraid of flying ever. Um, Maybe I don't want to sit right next to the engine. (laughs) You know, I'm sure everyone's heard this, but, you know, flying on a plane is so much safer than getting in your car. So I'm not afraid. I I understand what's going on in there. Uh And I realize there's a a lot of engineering behind this this wonderful machine and they've put a lot of safety factors in there and yeah. that's a much better way to look at it it's more like that knowledge is positive rather than be noticing everything that could go wrong it's more like all the ways engineers and smart people have mitigated what right. could go yep. very good For Beth, government and academic laboratories turned out to be the perfect fit for her career, as both environments gave her the flexibility to ask why and to dig deep into understanding what caused materials to behave the way they did. I'm Eileen DeGear, and this is Ceramic Tech Chat.
Thank you for joining us today. You can learn more about Beth and her work from our show notes on ceramics.org. Click on Ceramic Tech Chat under the Publications tab. We'll see you again next month.